Over the past eight months, we have brought to you a story that outside of Doreen Vincent's immediate family, local law enforcement, and a few local newspaper reporters, outside of them, nobody had ever heard of her case. And before we began this season of Faded Out, this 12-year-old girl was all but forgotten by time. But now, eight months later, we still may not know where Doreen is, but we know the players involved. And we know the pieces of the story that even the local media and the law enforcement never knew before. And so this case, the disappearance of Doreen Vincent in 1988, which was as cold as cold can get for three decades, is now very much alive. Because we have gotten more than double the amount of downloads this season than what we got last year covering a famous case. I said this in the first episode of this season. There are thousands of missing persons cold cases. Many of them are children. And the reality is majority of them never see any substantial publicity at all. And I would like to think that hearing me say that now, compared to hearing me say that in the first episode, you have a little more understanding of the gravity of that statement. But I think we learned a lot this season with Doreen's case that we didn't know before. One major thing is that these cases don't go cold for no reason. There's a lot of forces at play as to why no progress ever gets made on a case that's 30, 40, 50 years old. And now that we're armed with that knowledge, I'd like for Jessica Fritz Aguirre and Joe Aguirre and myself today to talk about those forces at play, including law enforcement and including our own interactions with law enforcement and what new things we've learned so far in Doreen's case and where it goes from here. So I want to welcome everybody to the season two finale of Faded Out. We are live right now. We are at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. We are here streaming the last episode of this season as we speak about the 1988 disappearance of Doreen Vincent. I'm joined by Joe Aguirre and Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and I'm Sarah Dimio. And let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about what I just mentioned, and that is the local law enforcement, the Wallingford Police Department. My first interaction with them. Shortly after I had picked Doreen's case to cover this season, I called the records department back in October, and I spoke to a woman there. I explained what this podcast was, what I was looking for, and as I got off the phone with her, I, well, she told me that somebody would be getting back to me soon. And I hung up the phone and I thought to myself, okay, well, at least she was nice. I didn't really expect anybody was going to call me back. It was kind of like she didn't take me that seriously, you know. But my phone rang within the hour and it was the Wallingford PD. And when I answered, it was a man's voice. And he was very straight and to the point. I said hello, and he said, Sarah Demio, please. And I didn't catch his name at the time, but my assumption is that I was talking to Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, um, the head of the traffic division. <laughs> um, he gave me the number for Lieutenant Michael Colavolpe, and he said that Colavolpe 
would not be available until December. So I had to wait for a little bit. Um, so a couple of months went by and I called again. And eventually I did get a hold of mm -hmm. Lieutenant Colavolpe. And that was the first and last time I ever spoke to him. That one conversation was nothing groundbreaking, but it was just kind of explaining what the podcast was, um, how I was looking for any public information that the Wallingford PD would be willing to share. And he said, okay, well, I have to check with the state's attorney's office. And once that was done, he would refer me to Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo. Um, and I was, you know, I was actually pretty hopeful at the time because for all intents and purposes, the police seemed to be pretty responsive. And as Joe said in a recent episode, the goal from the beginning was to work in a collaborative effort with law enforcement. Um, but I want us to talk about our interactions with the Wallingford Police Department from that point on, once the season premiered and once we started to gain traction. So, guys, let's start with when we first met Doreen's mother, Donna, along with her sister, Stephanie, and her aunts, Debbie and Carol, how Debbie told us that night that she had tried multiple times over the years to reach Lieutenant Colavolpe, and he would never get back to her. Do you remember that? I do. I do. And, you know, quite recently, I found out that I'm actually friends with Mike. Mike, Mike and I didn't know that he was actually on my Mike. softball team and a, a mutual friend of ours uh, mentioned, uh, you know, Mike's, I believe, heard the podcast, probably uh, hasn't liked what he's heard. But again, this was meant to be a collaborative effort. Right. And the, the collaboration was only on this end. Correct. And they were told uh, we were doing a podcast. You can either work with us or make yourselves the villains. And they made a choice. And, and remember, I'm really sorry about that, but that's how it went down. I remember being really surprised because before we went over to speak to Donna, we were talking to Joe's business partners about the project and about what it would look like. And remember Brian kind of rolled his eyes and said, what are you guys gonna do that the Wallingford Police Department hasn't done? <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> We, we hadn't met anybody. We hadn't met Donna. We hadn't met the police. We said, with all due respect to the police, they haven't solved it. So clearly there's something there. Well, yeah. Then like, you know, clearly they didn't find everything or else mm -hmm. the, the case wouldn't be an open case. But I guess I was under the impression, I think we all went, we had our conversations with Donna and the family and we went to leave. And it was only as we were leaving that they really started to tell us that their relationship with the police was ice cold over the past number of years they hadn't had any contact. They hadn't had contacts returned. That, I mean, that was a shocker because I just thought to myself, oh, I guess maybe we could, you know, kick over a stone, but the police have probably done all they could. We're going to find something. But there, was, there were a lot of things that they hadn't done, at least according to the family when we first started. Well, and it would have been nice if, again, when we met with the police, if somebody would have actually taken the apparently boatload of files and information they claim to have, probably they could have had that out. So that when we talked about the case, they could have referred back to, you know, actual statements and actually pulled out the evidence we were speaking of. Instead, it was a lot of guessing. It was clear no one had picked up that file since DeMeo, the hero that he is, went and put it in chronological order, like what, five or six years ago? More than that. Whatever like it was. Eight years yeah. ago, yeah. You know, so 
again, it, you know, my, my frustration, and I've said this before, it's worth repeating. My frustration was here I am trying to help you guys out, solve a case that's been kind of haunting you for 31 years. You couldn't, you couldn't read the file. You couldn't even have it out where you could have referred to it. I mean, come on. Well, my, my frustration too was even before a few months before this season started, it was always my intention that we were going to be working with the police. Like they would want to hear from us because I mentioned this in an episode too, that, um, you know, with open cases, police always say, we want to hear if you have any information from the public. We're the public. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like the public is giving you information and they just wrote us off from the very beginning. I don't even feel too. I think you can say more about that because there was the meeting with Joe and me with the chief and DeMeo and Cifarelli, but there was also Sarah, our, our Valentine's day meeting with yes. um, Lieutenant DeMeo. And one thing I've never said on the show before, I'll never forget this. We were going back and forth about theories about how she had died. Yeah. And he said, why do you keep talking about her dying a violent death? How do you know that happened? I said, well, I'm assuming she died. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming it was violent because a 12-year-old just doesn't die of natural causes. And then her body, like, you know. And he said, well, I don't think it was violent. I said, what do you think happens? He said, maybe he choked her out. Remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do remember that. And I looked at him and I said, excuse me. It's not very violent. <laughs> that's a violent, that's like one of the worst ways that you can go. Can you imagine if it, allegedly, Mark, your parent choking you to death? And I said, why did you, why, where does that theory come from? And he said, well, there was no blood. There was no blood a year later when they looked. So it's almost like, it's not that they haven't, they have been cooperative to an extent. And they have been collaborative to an extent. But I always felt like DeMeo thought that we were, a joke and he wasted our time does yeah. that i think that's absolutely right because uh something that i keep i i keep bringing up all throughout the season behind the scenes um something that uh he mentioned to you jess when you called him that uh he said that uh, oh your friend sarah is doing a blog mm -hmm. or something that, that pissed me off when you first told me, and I'm still mad about it. Well, I know why you're still mad. You know, what, you know what makes me mad, too, about that first phone call is I, I was at work. I took it out. I went out to my car, and he started, and he had sent us the, um, the press release, the Word document press release that never got released to anybody but the three of us. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, there were so many search warrants, and there were so many searches, and I thought to myself, well, I know where all the searches were, so I started rattling them off. And I think that threw him because I think he thought that we were calling cold with no information, not having done any homework. And this was early. Mm -hmm. I mean, we'd done admittedly a lot less homework than we've done at this point now in August. But, um, you know, he started, he was like, and there was a stepmother. And I said, well, I've talked to um, the mother, Donna. He said, does she still live in, in, uh, no, he asked if she was Bridgeport. alive first. Oh, is she alive? Then and she then asked, asked if she still lived in Bridgeport, and yes. she, she, never, Bridgeport. she never. She never lived, lived in Bridgeport. Bridgeport. I said I've been hanging out with um with Stephanie with Doreen's sister. He said, "Oh my God, Mark's kid." I said, "No, you like he didn't know the family unit. He didn't know who was who, and he was trying to talk to me about stuff that I already knew." And then when the conversation started to wane, he said, "Wow, you really know a lot about this case." You and think? I said, yeah, I do. So I'd like to talk to you about it and share it. And again, you know, he's never thought very much of us. He thinks that we're a joke. I thought when you and I met with 
the chief and those other two that I thought we had presented enough information and evidence to show that we were not messing around, that we weren't uh, the gang of Scooby-Doo. Um, and, and, you know, again, by all accounts from that meeting, things went really well and we were talking and it would look like we were going to maybe do some collaborative uh, effort going forward. And uh, then they didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I got that meeting by, I mean, I was having a lot of back and forths with DeMeo and I would call him and a lot of times he would tell me nothing was happening. And then I, he tried to write us off and I ended up, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but I ended up yelling at him and I said, you didn't know that Mark existed in the state of Connecticut until I told you. You haven't talked to Mark in years. We told you exactly where he is. We told you what he said. We gave you all this information. I said, you need to talk to us. Mm-hmm. And I basically demanded it and that's why I went back to my desk and I sent an email to DeMeo but I also copied um Chief Wright on it too to make him know that we were um serious and I I felt like it was serious when Chief Wright made the time because we were there for what a couple hours and he was about two hours yeah. yeah but let's first talk about that first meeting that Jess and I had with DeMeo in February because he was the one who called that meeting with us. We didn't request to have that meeting with him. And uh, his description of it was that he had a piece of information that he wanted to see what we would do with it. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't share anything more than that up until the meeting. So up until that, we were wondering what it was about. And we already knew at that point about the underwear pictures, mm-hmm. about the... Mm-hmm. Mark Vincent taking pictures of Doreen in her underwear and we knew that from a few places because first of all it's printed in a few newspaper articles it's already public information Mm -hmm. and the family confirmed that to us when we met them in January so we thought that maybe that was something he was going to tell us about or maybe we were going to see something or maybe it was going to have something to do with the underwear photos um but when jessica (laughs) when you asked him to his face about those underwear photos he denied their existence but you you phrased it in a a way Mm -hmm. you said you said is this about the photos Mm -hmm. and he said Oh, the underwear photos? Well, everybody listening... (laughs) Those don't exist. Everybody listening to this, watching this, if you haven't guessed by now, I have very little cool. Like, there's no, like, waiting and thinking about things and puzzling out details. You know, I had convinced myself that I was going to see underwear photos. And I think I was psyching myself up for the idea of seeing a little girl in pornographic pictures. And my mother said to me, I don't know, are you prepared for this? And I said, well, I don't even know if that's what I'm going to see, Mom, but I... If it is, I have to ready myself for it. I said, if she had to live through it, I have to face it. And I went in and Demea was like, hi, ladies. And I was like, is this about the photos? Like, I Mm kind of spilled my guts. And he just said, well, they never proved the underwear photos existed. Um, And, you know, I have to tell you, it's, it's not only do they deny the underwear photos, but every time we bring up that or sexual abuse or what happened to the aunts or the idea that Doreen might have been pregnant, they are... It's like they've been like burned. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, wait, why would you, why would you say that? And I'm like, are you serious? But I, let's get into, there's like two, a twofold <laughs> yeah. thing there because first of all, with the photos, we know they exist because I talked to Terry Sutton twice mm-hmm. 
And Terry Sutton told me that it was at that time, back in 1989, was known as Sergeant Hanley. Years later, it was now Chief Hanley up in Middlebury, Vermont, that told Terry Sutton that there were underwear photos. Mm -hmm. It is a officer who worked on the case, Mm -hmm. who confirmed to a journalist that those photos exist. And then later we found out from our anonymous cop source that actually he called me today. He's got more to say. I mean, this guy's just going and going and going. Um, there's a, an, there are other photos besides the two that were seized that there are others that he doesn't want to talk about. So when I think back to what Kate said, you know, I, I, I mean, again, I was psyching myself up for underwear photos, but I think there are photos that are worse. And I think there are photos, I mean, because why would they keep that a secret? I think there's other people in those photos. I think so, too. And I think probably you could tell certain locations in the photos, too. Mm -hmm. There's probably enough in the background of those photos Mm -hmm. that you could place it in a location as well. Whether the location's been torn down since then or not, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm saying, you know, (laughs) are there... Are, I see what you did there. Why, why, is, <laughs> why are places that are associated with the crime getting torn down within months? Um, you know, I, I spoke to someone today, an avid listener. We were at a picnic, and she said, I think Doreen just said what she said about the modeling to make herself feel better. Um, and it was self-soothing. And I said, I don't really, I don't know. I mean, talking about other girls, talking about an agent and a ph- photographer, I think sh- I can see her in a room with others. Because don't forget, Mark gave those photos out to somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, too, I think if you were going to do that, I mean, you certainly wouldn't tell her what was really happening. I think you would sell it like, oh, if you do really well, like you could be successful. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, so. the anonymous, remember the argument was supposed to have happened. Cifarelli told me over magazines, the argument with the paddling and the screaming. He said magazines. We actually had our anonymous cop source told us, um, you know, maybe he was, they were talking about the child porn magazines. He said, you should look into child porn from that time period. Mm, yeah. And I thought to myself, that was a long time ago. I mean, I'm, I, 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 there, it's hard to take certain jumps in this case. I don't want to take that jump. I don't want to look at child porn from the 80s. I'm just not, I'm not there. Maybe the FBI can with facial recognition software, but I'm not doing it. Right. And I mean, maybe the Wallingford Police Department should do it. Well, and I, I'm just confused even now, as to why Hanley refuses to acknowledge anything that we've been talking about within the past eight months, because he spoke so much in 2001, 10 years after he left the Wallingford Police Department, and then again to Terry Sutton in 2014. I think he got in trouble. Uh, I think he got yelled at. Yeah, and I think that there is... Like I said in the last episode, episode 25, after the 2001 article, that is when there is this noticeable secrecy mm-hmm. surrounding the case mm-hmm. and surrounding it, it. The moment that underwear photos were mentioned in that article, that's when everything stops cold. Right. Um, because there were a, a, a number of articles from 1988 up until 1995, like a good seven to eight year period just after she disappeared. And then there was that one big article in 2001. And then it all stops. Right. And Debbie and Carol came out of the woodwork, anonymous or not, to talk about their own abuse. 
mm-hmm. and it shut right down. So, yeah, I don't know. Where did the where did the police first find out about the camera and the, I mean, that came right from Mark, correct? Well, so here's, and it didn't make sense to me because again, we were putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Kate says during my interview with her, how did they know to ask him about underwear photos? Mm-hmm. And she said, they must've found out about it from me. Now, don't forget in, in Kate's telling, she tells about the underwear photos and she doesn't remember who she spoke to. It was an authority figure. She doesn't remember if it was a principal or a teacher or well, she a was 12 at the time, right? Or yeah, I mean, yeah. and it was 30, it was over 30 right. years ago, but she says she remembers the investigator coming back and saying like, oh, you silly little girl. There were and multiple other girls too that I haven't spoken to at the school. No, there was, there were no photos. There was no agent. There was no modeling. And she, when she sent me the original email, when she got in touch with me, she said, um, you know, I, I was led to believe all these things by Doreen this whole time. And then I found out that they were a bunch of, she didn't say garbage, but she said, you know, those were later proven wrong. But that's because the investigators told Kate that she was wrong about what Doreen had been telling her. While at the same time, finding underwear photos in Mark's possession. And then that, that aspect of the, of the investigation seems to have ground to a halt again. There's, there's so much stuff surrounding sexual abuse and trafficking and photos and porn. Why isn't that being, why isn't that door being ripped? It very why much, was it never, ever opened it, from that point on ever? It, it implies to me that there's other people involved, that there's other people in this circle of people who are buying these photos, people who are seeing these photos and are involved in these photo shoots, people who... Not like Mark Vincent, people who are a little higher up in society than Mark Vincent mm-hmm. is. That's what that really implies to me. Well, I'm not going to say it, but I told you, I, I'm not going to say the name, but I learned today about two hours ago, there's a bit player that has a lot more to say that he or she did not say to me the first time around. And it's, it's funny when you find out little mm-hmm. things like that, right? Like, oh, oh, that's, that's interesting that you have information that I didn't I mean and I'm, I'm gonna sit on it because I don't want to give anybody a heads up but um you know I, I I can only say that what I think about Jimmy Farnham is alleged but that was a weird conversation mm-hmm well and the conversation with Jimmy Farnham the conversation with a few people that that you had to cold call out of nowhere they seemed very very guarded very mm-hmm. they, they were all very guarded I have to say and didn't really want to even admit to knowing Mark Vincent mm-hmm. or being connected to Mark Vincent. But also all, all had very specific memories that involved Mark Vincent, though. Or Doreen, mm-hmm. right? And you would think that if you knew a guy, I mean, you know, okay, I'm 41, so there's, there's a little less mileage on me. But 31 years ago, if I had known someone whose kid went missing, I'd know the updates on the case. I'd be asking the person questions. I'd be calling them every once in a while to see how they were doing. If you had renovated my house and then rented my house 30 years ago, I'm positive I would remember you. I, mm-hmm. I would. Well, this is something I didn't catch until I was listening to the Jimmy Farnham audio for, you know, the 80th time or whatever. But he says at one point, oh, and we knew him because he renovated the house. And he says that almost as a throwaway fact. I it, I missed it the first 79 times, but Laura West says that he did their house in New Haven on Fountain Street in the mid-80s. That's what he meant when he said that. 
-hmm. he was saying, oh yeah. And then he renovated our house. And in my head, I, because I was on one track in my mind, I heard Whirlwind Hill Road. Oh yeah, that's right. He did. He renovated Whirlwind Hill Road, but he was talking about an unnamed house and an unnamed town and an unnamed time that he, Mark had done work on that first house. Because it seems like Whirlwind, it was more, um, uh, maybe painting and, and, not quite a renovation. Well, $600 a month, right? For a whole house. Which is $1,200. That's a good deal. <laughs> which is $1,200. I think we looked it up. And people have said to me too, like, well, $1,200 for a whole house is, that's actually a really good deal. And I'm like, yeah, but it was in 1988. And we're talking a drifter handyman. I don't care how good he is at what he does. But right. I mean, I guess he was making those $100 hampers for Georgia. Don't forget. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah. A lot of it is weird. A lot of the relationships that we find out just here and there that Mark Vincent had with various people. It just seems that, and Jess said this in a previous episode too, that Mark seems to attach himself to people who are very mm-hmm. higher up in society. Mm-hmm. And I think he's always, he's very good at what he does. Teresa has said that. Um, Donna and Debbie and Carol have said that. He's, he's very good at what he does. It's mm-hmm. interesting that they're drawn to him. Mm-hmm. Who, the women or the people? These people in general. I mean, it, whether it be Georgia Lewis or or the men in, in, in his life, people no, like has- Jimmy Farnham, who sort of have helped this guy along and taken him in. Teen Challenge, where he's at now, they've been very protective of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have to jump in, though, and defend the people from Teen Challenge a little bit because... I feel like they're not just jumping in and defending every one of his actions. The one that the ones that have contacted us privately are the ones that I'm talking about right now. They've been very curious mm-hmm. and wanting to know more like, oh, tell me more about this because I don't know this story. And I want to make sure I'm safe at work. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if that person at work throws things haphazardly in the direction of whoever might be in the way. Right. That's a weird thing all right, right in and of itself. And then you find out maybe he's been implicated in a murder and suddenly him throwing a hammer on a site takes on a whole new meaning. Right. Right. So I could understand where these people are like, uh, wait a minute. Is this all verified? What they said was they, they told, they told one of our sources, you're not allowed to work for teen challenge. If you have child abuse, which has never been, you know, charged or or convicted of or arson in your past because they don't I mean they don't care for property destruction um arson's not on his record because he did it when he was a teenager so you know they're worried about property destruction because I don't think those people have a lot they're trying to make new lives for themselves um and somebody in your midst who would destroy all that is a dangerous person can I go off on a quick teen challenge tangent sure (laughs) listening (laughs) listening to Jimmy Farnham for the 81st time um, when I spoke to him, I'm now aware that Teen Challenge Connecticut doesn't have teenage members. It's adults only. Thank goodness. I didn't realize that there are chapters. Some chapters have teenagers. Some chapters have adults only. Some chapters have a mix. When I spoke to Jimmy Farnham, I said he works for, I think it was a recovery addiction, or addiction recovery services um, outfit in New Haven. I said um, they deal with teen or they deal with youth. And he said, oh, you mean Teen Challenge? Now, I was wrong. (laughs) I was wrong. I said the wrong thing. So there's, I bet you there are a bunch of outfits in New Haven that deal with youthful addiction. 
I was wrong in what I was saying. And he was like, oh, I know exactly he what still you're talking knew, about. But he still knew what organization you were talking about. And the about. thing is, he, knew he, exactly what I was he knows about. what Teen Challenge is. And he knows what Teen... He could have even corrected you and been like, oh, uh, you mean with adults? Because that's Teen Challenge. You know what I mean? He just really gave himself up on that. Again, allegedly. I mean, it's weird that he knew all sorts of stuff and was, you know... And then he told me it was a very upright Christian group, which it might be... There are a lot of reviews on the internet that say otherwise. Well, so, again, I suspect, and we, we've talked about this all 81 times that you've listened back to it. You listen with me. The okay. second he picked it up, I mean, he wanted, a, he wanted information from you. He knew what you were calling for. He knew who you were calling for, and he played stupid, allegedly. Well, I, can we... I mean, I think we all remember the very beginning of that call. You started to leave him a voicemail, and then all of a sudden he appears on the phone. He's like, he, he jumped for that phone. Uh, hello? I, I really don't like the girl that got, the girl that got, the girl that went missing. And have they, have they, they never found her? Oh, and then when he said, so what's it to Donna? Is this just like a big mystery to her or whatever? And I thought, of course it's a mystery to her. Yeah. She's a missing girl. She's gone. You know, again, he might, th that might have been the blatherings of somebody I caught off guard on a Sunday night, right? I, it, it, he might have been taken aback. He might have had a couple glasses of wine that night. I don't know. But listening to it, every single time we listen to it, the three of us, we get another nugget out of it. But he's also never gotten back to you. No, Despite no. follow-ups. And you had pointed out, Sarah, that it's not like we had shared information or any of the audio from Jimmy on this show before you had reached out on with follow-ups no so it's not yeah. like he and even at the time nobody suspected that he was anything more than the landlord right and that he had met the guy we assumed 10 days out it was from the time doreen allegedly went missing so a, a lot of a lot of the things he said obviously have been incredibly inconsistent but you followed up before he would have been I don't want to say accused, but before he sort of came into the crosshairs. Well, that, that's the thing is that like just talk to him before we ever released an episode. Yet. Well, you know what I was thinking of the other day, and maybe we shouldn't say this out loud because I know she'll get angry, but Teresa Lyon was aware of the podcast long before it aired. Mm -hmm. It came out in an article in the Record Journal, and I thought to myself, oh, she's just getting local news down there in Florida. Of course. She's getting her old paper, the Record Journal. She's looking it up online. No, she wasn't. Teresa Lyons never lived in the vicinity of Meriden, Wallingford, Cheshire, or is that the only place it serves? It's basically like those. central, like southern central Connecticut area. Yeah. Why? I mean, again, I know she's going to be pissed that I'm saying this, but why are you looking at the Record Journal? 30 years later, that doesn't make any sense to me. Unless, you know, maybe you've got a Google alert on your... Unless uh, she was searching the name Mark Vincent or Doreen Vincent. Right around, right when your article dropped, though. Because how long was it between the the article itself and her call to Lauren to chorus to call you? Oh, not even anything. It was maybe a, a week later. Like the the first article with Lauren to chorus dropped and maybe... And then Lauren to chorus emails me one day and says, hey, there's this woman, uh, Teresa Lyons, says she's uh, an old girlfriend of Mark Vincent. And right. so she was she was on it. Yeah. I, 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 I only talked to Teresa that one time. It seemed like a pleasant lady and all, but 
Did Lauren Tacoris no. ever talk to Teresa? Not that I know of. No, just only to only to pass her along to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right? Wouldn't you? High hey, journalistic Sarah. standards again. <laughs> Here we go. Well, again, I mean, Teresa has given us a lot of great information. And, you know, um, she has been on the outskirts recently because she was um, spinning out, I think, a little bit. She was. Spinning out. Yeah. Um, well, but- this is a lot for anybody. I mean, look, let, let, we all know, look, you know, Donna has really been struggling with all this. And, you know, of of anybody involved in this story, I think Donna deserves it. Oh, yeah. Donna, Donna, as far as I'm concerned, can do whatever she wants. Um, but, you know, the, the, the family's been struggling with this. This has been hard. This was hard for Paul Vincent. Mm-hmm. You know, as as he sort of joined the group and, and got involved. And the same thing with Teresa. And, and you know, the idea that these people are sort of rehashing this insane part of their life. Mm-hmm. The fact that this thing is still wide open 31 years later, there's been no resolution for anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of mixed emotion for Paul, for Teresa, for Donna, for, for a lot of people involved in this. Yep, Carol, Debbie, Jane, Stephanie. Everybody, yeah, everybody, everybody. everybody. And I always feel badly when I have to call people and talk to them because it's ripping open wounds and it's making people think about, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen. Um, you know, but the, Paul was at Gouveia. Lauren Tacoris didn't talk to Paul either. I think maybe she shook his hand and um, I think they I think they did meet. They met. I, I think they met each other. I don't know that she asked him any poignant questions or anything like that, though. Or that he made any appearance whatsoever in the article. Paul being there was substantial. Yeah. Yes. He came all the way from Ohio. He lived in Ohio. He drove all the way out here. Mm -hmm. There's um, there's some people on the feed. Um, Jennifer Conklin is at Gouveia with two others listening. They're literally looking out the window at the house right now. That's fantastic. And it's... (laughs) It's it's hard because I've sent people there and I've been there and I think it's it's so beautiful but it's so difficult to look at when you know what you know. Right. Um, people are Shannon's watching from home with her dog. Um, people are watching in Dallas. I mean, this is pretty amazing. Oh, hi, Skip. <laughs> is that Seebs? Yeah, it is. Yeah. What's, up, What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I can I can see the the feed on the computer screen that I have right next to me too. So yeah, a lot of people are commenting. Um, but okay. So I want to get into the, the second half of the law enforcement side of this. And, um, I want to warn everybody, this is going to get a little bit dark right now because, um, I mentioned in the last episode how Joe and Jess in March met with chief William Wright, Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, and at that time, Sergeant Cifarelli who we had previously referred to as Detective 3 up until the Record Journal printed his name, um, and who we later found out his brother is a director at Teen Challenge, the organization that Mark works for. I'd like you guys to talk about that meeting because you were there, I was not. Um, And I was hoping, Joe, if you could share your working theory on what happened to Doreen and you're telling it to police that day. So this is all alleged and I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to keep it calm. And here's my theory. Here's what I think happened. Uh, and, and this isn't speculation. Uh, this is based on witness testimony from multiple sources. 
This theory's come from the testimony of the family, as well as from Mark's own statements, and then a little bit of detective work. Some things that have also previously been eliminated as possibilities leads me to believe, and, and in the followers of Faded Out page, a couple people pretty much nailed what my theory was. So here's, here's what I have. Um, and this came before I even knew about maybe this, because I always just wanted this to be Mark did it. We have to figure out where she is. And I never wanted there to be more people involved. I just didn't. I didn't want to go down that hole. And unfortunately, here we are. But my theory was, again, we've talked about the fact that they, the family thought immediately upon meeting us, they wanted to inform us that they thought Doreen was possibly pregnant. It's like the first thing. Yeah. And we've obviously you guys did those episodes so tremendously well uh, about the sexual abuse. Um, so my thought was number one, why did they end up in Wallingford? They didn't need to move. There wasn't like a pressing need to move. Mark's work was in the area where they lived for the most part. So going out to the middle of nowhere, Wallingford seemed like he was trying to hide. And what we know about Mark over the previous couple of years was he's always been trying to keep a low profile. He's done a really good job of it since 2003 to the point where obviously the police didn't even know where Mark was at all when we first contacted them. So here they are out in the middle of Wallingford. Why? It, it, that doesn't seem to make any sense. You're out in the middle of nowhere. Where are you going to find work? Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. then we find out there's a relationship with Jimmy Farnham, but I'm going to toss that off to the side as well. The comforter is missing. Never found the comforter, and we've talked about this a million times. How would you ruin a comforter? What, what could you get on a comforter that you couldn't clean or flip the comforter over and use the other side of it? Well, here's the other thing that's always bothered me, too. At first, they told Donna that Sharon was washing it. Right. Then they asked for it later, and that's when it was gone. So I don't know if it was already gone. And it was Doreen ruined it. Messed it up. Or messed it up. Not even right. just right. It wasn't messed just it Doreen up. spilled something on it. And unfortunately, it was, I mean, messed it up messed is it up. is like, it's Doreen's fault, really. I'd even, I've actually bounced this off Paul Vincent. Mm-hmm. And he Mm-mm. wasn't, wasn't, you know, it, it didn't shock him completely to hear what I had to say. So I think this girl was pregnant. I think he moved out to the middle of nowhere. With the idea that he had to stay out of sight. Donna, despite what the Wallingford police continue to say or think, didn't know where they were moving to. And even when it became clear that Wallingford was the place, they still didn't have an address. And Wallingford's a big place. Mm, So he was hiding that kid. Mm -hmm. To the point where we've talked about this. Donna can't even really remember what the last visit was. Mm Mm-hmm. So if she were pregnant and Mark is purposely making her miss visits with mom and then moves out to the middle of nowhere, come on, a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. The comforter messed up. That's missing. We obviously know she didn't run away because all the clothes and everything, everything's in the house. So mm-hmm. my thought, my theory, as presented to Chief Wright and the gang, was I think, and I hate even saying this and bringing this up, 
again, some listeners kind of hit this theory. Um, I think it might have been um, some sort of at-home abortion. Again, according to the testimony of Mark himself, Sharon took the other kids out of the house because of the screaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what kind of beating would that be? Yeah, but remember, what he's would not be a physical a, guy. And Ryan, he's not a physical, not a physical guy, guy, so he's not beating her or paddling as, as he claimed. That's really, again, not in line with the Mark we all know and love. Oh, Mark wouldn't be beating somebody. So where where would screams, where would sustained screaming be to where Jimmy Piscotti, the neighbor, heard it? Right. Mm-hmm. On a weekend. So don't forget. This is where my theory is. And then the patio shows up. Yeah. I mean, that's right. my theory. That's again, I think if you look at those things and you want to chalk them all up as coincidences. And yeah, that's so, a lot of them. Joe, you came up with this. We were sitting on the patio. I think we might have been having a glass of wine and I recoiled from you. And I was like, that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life. Don't say it again. That's messed up. And I went in the house and I thought to myself for a little while and I came back out and I said, you know what? I think you might have got something there. And then you had told Sarah and I texted Sarah. I was like, did Joe tell you his horrible, disgusting theory? I was we were in Joe's office right across the hall here when you shared that theory with me. And I think I just stared back at you for a good few (laughs) seconds. Like. But then I when I actually thought about it, I was like, yeah, all these little weird details that we know about. It's horrifying. Fit together when you put it in that context. And again, knowing the relationship they had, mm-hmm. you know, again, it seemingly maybe crossed some kind of line. I know even the cops were concerned about what they saw or even it described. And I think one of the warrants is an unusual relationship, father and daughter. Um, Mark loved that kid. Mm-hmm. And, and I've said this a million times. If Mark was responsible directly for her death, mm-hmm. I don't think he did it on purpose. I don't think he choked her out. I don't think he pushed her through a window. Mm. I don't think it was any. I don't think Mark would have hurt her. I think there was a fight where that with involving Doreen or others, but that window got broken somehow during a well, fight. I wonder if the window got broken because Mark throws stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, right? Definitely. I mean, again, we, we've heard from a million people from the 80s until literally current. Teen yeah. Challenge people have said Mark throws things at people. Maybe Mark threw something in, in the heat of what was going on and hit the window with whatever. And you there, know, there, there's a million. I don't think that the broken window is necessarily an important piece of the puzzle here. No, I really don't. I there's, think it happened in the middle of a melee. Because here's the right? thing. Mark, Mark, Mark or somebody clean that, that place up. Mm-hmm. But the glass a year later was still broken. Right. Mark would not have left the glass broken a year. That's idiotic. And, and the idea that the police think that 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 it, I mean, come on. Yeah, but the women said that it was broken. When there they was went a there. ladder. There was a ladder right, outside right, the right, window right. the day they showed up. You're yelling a little bit. I can't help You're it. yelling a little bit. But these kinds it. of things, these kinds of things. And this is where. Um, so the new podcast is Sticky Beak because that means, um, you know, what is it? A curious and uh, and basically a nosy person. Which yeah. I'm nosy. Whatever. I'm going to keep asking questions and getting to the bottom of these things. 
It was the same thing with the pedophile rings, right, Sarah? Mm-hmm. We started talking about pedophile rings, and Sarah was like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. And I was like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole once. I don't want to do that. And then we started to think about um, all the stories that he'd heard about her over all these months. And it was like, you know, it's not a simple story. If it had been a simple story, it would have been solved. And we never would have had her name available to us to research. There's something weird going on. And it's, I don't know. Well, again, either something weird is going on or these, the, the Wallingford police are the most incompetent law enforcement group in the entire world well, here's because a funny th- thing. Th- this would have been a really obvious case. And I don't think that Wallingford police, I really don't. Uh, and again, we're talking about 1988 Wallingford police. And I- I'm just going to bring this up again. Now that I'm attacking uh, the Wallingford police, <laughs> you know, I-, I talked to a high ranking law enforcement official in Connecticut when we first got into this right, case, Jeff, who said sad. they couldn't solve it. Then they probably couldn't solve something like that. Now they just don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, I want to also talk about, you had mentioned to me during that meeting um, when you brought up the issue of sexual abuse oh. to specifically Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo. Um, yeah, and I, there's some stuff that I want to because we're preparing for the FOIA hearing, so I don't want to go too hard, but let me just say that um, the Wallingford Police Department did not really want to talk to us about the sexual abuse angle. You mentioned the abortion, and they said... Um, well, we've never really considered that possibility at all. Why would you think she was pregnant? And I think DeMeo had asked me one time, he said, well, she would have had to have her period. You know, nobody, nobody will be ever, ever, no one will ever be able to find out the answer to that question. I said, oh, I know the answer to that question. Donna told me. Right. And Debbie told me and Carol told me. Because I asked them, you know, in a case, this is the problem, in a case so rife with sexual abuse of the aunts and, you know, um, Mark's control over Doreen and her acting out and, you know, her maybe masturbating in class and the underwear photos. Pregnancy and sexual abuse is not a big jump. They it treated, should, it not shouldn't all. be. They treated it like it was angle. a big jump. DeMeo said to Joe, you know, with all due respect, you know how many theories we've had on this case over the past three decades? Who's to say your theory is any better than any of the other theories that have come through here? And I looked at him. I said, with all due respect, you guys haven't solved the case. Well, so, and with all due respect, no one ever checked out my theory. So you don't know because you didn't investigate it, but you could have. So I'll do right. it myself. Well, and I guess that's been the hard part is that, you know, my contact, our contact really as a group with the Wallingford Police Department didn't stop when I tried to, um, you know, ruin their investigation. Our, our, our contact stopped when... I called Lieutenant Cifarelli out on his potential connection to Mark Vincent and he got mad at me and no one ever responded to any of my questions ever again. And if that's the way we're going to play it, I mean, I find that to be, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. I don't know what the word is that I want to use. Well, let's get into the topic of theories then. Like what happened? Um, Like Joe just mentioned his working theory. Um, I'm going to talk about some different theories I've had. We each have our own theories on what happened to Doreen and people helping us with the case each have their own theories too. And members of the followers group have had a lot of great theories that they've brought to us, some of which we didn't even think of during the past several months. Um, So my belief as to what might have happened um, came when we met the family for the first time back in January, because that was when Carol told us that on one of their trips to the house, Shortly after Doreen disappeared, Mark was outside laying that cement. 
and I think immediately for all of us, the alarm started to go off. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, my God, the girl just went missing. He's laying cement. She must be under the cement. That's what we all kind of thought of at that first at that first meeting. And I think that that's what a lot of followers thought mm. when we first played that audio. Um, but that being that, it still doesn't answer the question of how, because to believe that you have to believe that either Mark killed her or somebody else on that property killed her. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a number of ways that you could reach that conclusion, but now knowing what we know, I'm beginning to lean towards somebody took her from that property. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so let's put it all into context. Like you just talked about, you know, the screaming uh, in the house, how Jim Piscotti heard it and how the only way he could have heard it would have been on a weekend. Mm -hmm. Put all of that into context. But I just feel like when you put it into context with the almost confession that happened in 2003, mm -hmm. if you think about how that was explained to us by Lieutenant DeMeo that Mark wanted to impart a piece of information relevant to Doreen's disappearance, that says to me, that he has a piece of information, he has a piece of something bigger, meaning that he may know who took Doreen, but he doesn't know what happened to her after a certain point. Mm -hmm. And that's, when you add that event into it, that's kind of the theory that I have now, that somebody else took her away from that property. If you're trying to find her, don't look at me. Yeah. Look somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. If you're trying to find her, like, they're, exactly. That's exactly mm -hmm. how he quotes it, too. Well, you guys remember, too, um, I decided to go back and listen to the conversation that I had with Mark, and I decided I was going to listen to it uh, at his insistence that he's not a murderer, a yeah. rapist, or a liar. Yeah. And I thought, okay, right? Sarah, you and I talked about this. I'm like, I'm going to listen to this thing like he's telling <clears throat> me the truth. And when you listen to it with that mindset, it certainly sounds like somebody else was responsible for whatever happened to her as far as leaving that house. But then you look at the statement about the stories that he'd been hearing or the idea even when Jimmy Farnham mentioned, wasn't she, wasn't she seen in Bridgeport? Mm -hmm. Weren't there rumors of that? So obviously people were talking or yeah. they wouldn't have all heard these same stories. The party line this entire time has been that she's a runaway, right? Yeah. Either something bad happened to her or she's a runaway. But as soon as you started talking to Mark, pedophile rings. Now, I don't know for how long that's been his line. Maybe it's been for a while. But we all kind of, like I said, we all kind of laughed. He came off like, you know, a conspiracy theorist. Which, when I talk to people who don't follow the podcast, I'm like, oh, and there's a pedophile ring and there's a wacky neighbor and there's this and that. People are like, really? And I'm like, yeah, really? You got to listen to it. Um, but yeah, the other thing that's always bothered me, and again, this is not going to win me any favors with the Farnham family, but um, during an event where Mark, and I think it's all one ball of wax, right? There was a fight. 
there was screaming, there was paddling, and there was window breakage. I don't know how that happened. And then she left the house, whether by her own, you know, volition or not, however it happened, somebody else. But Doreen was a pretty good kid, right? And on a day that she needed discipline was a day that she went missing. And Mr. Farnham refers to her as being very oppositional and needing a lot of discipline. Yeah. And for a girl that he really should have known for about seven to ten days, it's weird that that would be the thing that would stick out in his head is a disciplinary problem child when someone was apparently getting paddled so hard that they screamed. So, you know, I don't know. That's that's just that's those those words ring in my ears. Well, that description that he gave about her always sat wrong with me. And I've mentioned this, too, that it just always seemed to me that for him to call her oppositional or say that she was a disciplinary problem of any kind, it just it always for me, I was like, well, she's gone. Well, so but it's like, her. but it's like that's just not something you say unless you're like a parent or a teacher or you are a person of authority mm-hmm. to that child. Mm-hmm. That's not something you say about a child that you don't know or you're not connected to in that way. Well, especially a child, again, it takes on more gravitas that she's missing and that she's been gone for 30 years and that she's likely dead um, and that she was, you know, missing under the hand of, or, you know, under the watch of at least of your friend on your property. And he didn't really seem, he never said that's sad or I feel bad for the family or that's, that's tragic. It was always, that's bizarre and huh. Um, but I did meet with a member of the, um, the followers at dinner the other night. And this kind of goes into my theory, which I don't have honed because it's like, I want to take a little bit of Joe. I want to take a little bit of Sarah and put them all together. But, um, she said, that if Mark was responsible, he wouldn't have put her on the property or anywhere related to Mark. And I said, well, what about, um, you know, he wanted to keep her somewhere special and somewhere he could visit and somewhere he was in control of. And she said, no, 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 that's what serial killers do. She said they, they do it somewhere special and they take a trophy and all that stuff. For someone who would have allegedly maybe killed his daughter in the heat of the moment, for a person like that, she then becomes an object to him. She's a problem. She's not a token anymore. She's not a prized possession. She becomes a body to get rid of. And picture this too. I mean, I think that the the porch is a really good place to look. I think that'd be the first place that I'd look. But if she ends up being under there, I mean, it's pretty much game over, right? Or at least, you know, we're getting a lot closer. Um, but if she's, this woman brought up, you know, if she's found in a pond somewhere that's not related to Huntington State Park or the Gouveia Farnham, you know, ish properties, then he can always say, well, she's in some random place. Someone else took her um, after she ran away and got rid of her. So, um, you know, he would have wanted, a, if you think about it in that respect, he would have wanted the body away from him. Like, get it, because again, if it turns up on the property, it's, we're looking at you, Mark. I have to think too, though. He he kind of knew he wasn't staying long. Well, if 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 my if if my working theory is correct, I mean, why do you move out into the middle of nowhere, Wallingford, with a girl that goes to school elsewhere, and you have two little kids, and you're giving up work to do that? I mean, I I think she went to Wallingford maybe even for a specific purpose. That's my guess. And once she was gone, that purpose is gone as well. I mean, if she was a commodity and pictures of her were a commodity, once she's gone, there's nothing left 
to give away or sell or whatever. God, I mean, again, I just feel, I feel dirty just saying those things, but we know he was giving pictures out because he said it. The man said it himself. Now, here's an interesting theory too, because I think we've brought it up before because I'm glancing over at the live feed right now. And mm. Cindy Nori just posted, um, it could be that they were hiding from someone while in Wallingford. And that thought did cross our minds too, that maybe he was trying, do you think he was trying to get away from somebody moving from Bridgeport to Wallingford? Um, I don't necessarily think that, but I think he was trying to get away from somebody when he moved from Wallingford to wherever he went. Mm -hmm. I mean, he fled that property. Yeah. But it was, uh, he fled that property a month after the barn came down. And, um, you know, I think on the next podcast, I'm going to do a little bit more research into, you know, I want to see what that permit looks like. I want to see what, um, what reasons were given. I think it was a, um, a salvage permit but it doesn't make sense right you let up you let tenants go on your property and then f four months later you tear a barn down did you want to make it safe before you make me say i don't that doesn't make any sense and why is it being torn down when there is still a girl that went missing from that property wouldn't you have to preserve everything on that property during that whole time i don't think the police were paying attention yeah i don't either i don't think you know it seems to me from the articles that we found Stuff really heated up when Hanley got interested, when Hanley started asking difficult questions. And that was in the spring of 89. And, and just with Hanley, too, I, it's like I've been saying before, Hanley is such a mysterious character still in this case because he just seemed like he was wanting to talk so much during mm -hmm. those articles, during the 2001 article and then the almost 2014 article that never was. Um, and now... Nothing. Now, now it's inappropriate, but, right. but it's like, but it's like, it's like, I feel like he knows something and will not share. Like, it's not mm -hmm. that he can't share it. It's that he, he won't share it. And it's like, it, it frustrates me. And it's like, it frustrated me in the last episode. Get loud. Know? Get and loud. It's okay. <laughs> the whole time. And, but, and I even, I remember when he sent me that email, just giving his official, his mm -hmm. official statement. And I forwarded it on to you guys, mm -hmm. and I said, oh, FYI, Hanley's not budging. Mm -hmm. um, well, because I reached out, too, and I think it was after a few from you and one from me that he then responded back to you. And, you know, I think he said, I don't know if the other people calling me work for Faded Out, but I'm not responding to anybody. The Facebook, however, is magical. Now, I have to say this. In 1988, Facebook didn't exist, but it exists now. And, you know, we know people who know people who know Hanley. So let's... Let's keep digging on that, too. I find it odd that so many people connected to this case. You just mentioned one of them being mm -hmm. Hanley. Another good one being Mark. Two people who seemingly would want this thing solved. They've talked about they'd, they'd love to see this case get solved. And along with the rest of the Wallingford police just aren't really backing up the words, though. And I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm lost mm -hmm. as to why the people who want this solved so much have been so uncooperative to us. We've reached out to all of these people. Again, I mean, how many times have I, have I reached out to Mark? 
Well, it, and it's like we've already been talking about, though. Everybody says that they want to see the case solved more than anyone else. That's what Lieutenant DeMeo even said to us in that mm-hmm. meeting mm-hmm. Uh, that Jess well, and I had Donna. with him. Yeah, yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then Jess, you were like, oh, no, maybe Donna. I can't help myself, um, guys. I'm a nosy, pushy person. That's just how it works. Um, you know, another person that... Um, We've talked to Sarah, you know who it is, but I spoke to him a couple weeks ago off the record. Are you kicking me? Sorry. Spoke to him a couple weeks ago off the record. He was like, oh, you know, you should really talk to is Lieutenant Butka, who's mentioned in a couple of those, um, in a couple of those articles. He said, you got to talk to Butka because I referred to this witness again, who I can't talk about because he's done on the record. Um, sticky beat guys. But, um, I, I said, you're my white whale. And the witness said, you want to talk about someone who knows about white whales? Well, you got to talk to Lieutenant Butka because this case for him was just a, a pain in his heart all these years and he's been carrying it around. And I was like, well, that's weird because Lieutenant Butka refused to talk to me. So. I mean, come on, guys. We're here. We're here. That's, this is what I'm talking about, right? It's all how, about how, how how are you supposed to feel right about this? I mean, there's three it, young scrappy kids who have the best timeline anybody ever wrote, right? Yes, toot toot. I mean, we talk about this every week. We have people coming in. We have people. I mean, there's a ton of comments right now on the page because people are interested. People have questions. People have theories. I mean, these it's resource rich for the Wallingford police to dig in and be like, let me take a look at what you guys got. And they want to solve it more than anybody. Well, and like I was just going to say, they all say that, but but they all they all say that. That's where it ends. Yeah. It's just, it's Actions lip speak louder than but words. It all comes back to, I think, the underwear photos, because it's something that we know exists. Everybody knows that they exist, even though we've never seen them in person. But they're such an integral factor in this case. And What stands out about the photos is something that I talked about in the last episode is the two different explanations that Doreen had for them. Um, She would tell her mother and her aunts that Mark was taking these pictures of her because she wanted to wear a bathing suit. And it was, you know, some kind of way for him to punish her or humiliate her or something like that to make her pose only because she wanted to wear a bathing suit. But then she tells Kate, and her other friends at Westwood's Christian Academy that like, no, I'm, I'm a model. I've been doing this since I was six years old. Um, I go on these photo shoots to New York City every weekend. Um, I'm up for this big gig. And now, obviously, we know that there was no agent. There was no actual modeling gig or anything like yeah, that. But well, I'm saying not re- not yeah. an actual, not an yeah, actual modeling agency. It wasn't Teen Vogue. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but which one was it though because was it as simple as mark was just trying to humiliate her and she was just trying to make herself feel better in front of her friends or were there other people involved who were shuffling her off to the city and making her actually think that she was about to become this fashion model or something like that which one was it it's two different stories so which one lines up better and i don't necessarily believe the the swimsuit one because that sounds like something that you say to your to your ma kind of well like a cry for help i'm glad you're uh... saying that because you know my thought is um that she was protecting her dad yeah i when her mom point blank asked yeah is he sexually molesting you and she said no and that was that Mm -hmm. and then the idea that she would go i mean again why would anybody tell their friends this stuff Yeah. yeah why and 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 
you know, you could say, well, right, I think DeMeo, you know, seventh graders will just make stuff like that's that up. That's what he said, seventh which graders is make shit up all the time. an insane thing to say. Right. That's just insane. Well, not only that, but when he said seventh grade girls make stuff up all the time, I was like, yeah, but not she that. did have underwear photos. There are underwear photos. Right. But also, too, I want to take it back to something that Karen Calcaterra said. Uh, immediately okay. when you brought that up to her, she said, but why would a seventh grader make that up? Like, why would she say that? But she also knew, you know, Kate said she knew about blowjobs. She yeah. talked about how boys all the time, they wondered if she had sexual experience. Um, you know, she seemed older. There's just a whole, and, and you put that with like all the other little things that we've learned. And I, you know, I want to make it clear. I think people understand, but it, it's hard for, you know, it's hard for people. We're not trying to trash Doreen as someone who is promiscuous or sexually active. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell a larger picture about someone evincing signs of having been abused. We'll understand too. This was a little girl who was getting bounced back and forth yeah. between two families. So the idea, uh, you know, I think that girl loved her dad. She loved her mom. And there was already a lot of tension between the two adults. Yeah. And, you know, when you're caught in the middle as a 12-year-old, it's hmm. it's a tough spot to be in. I think also, too, we have to remember, and this is something else that Karen Calcaterra said, mm -hmm. that um, whatever kind of relationship that uh, Mark and Doreen had, if it was that he was touching her inappropriately, um, that uh, sexuality has sort of been activated in the child mm -hmm. and they respond to it because it feels good mm -hmm. because um, those that sexual stimulation feels good. And she doesn't want she I mean, that was her Doreen's version of what a relationship with her dad was like. Mm -hmm. um, and that was what she thought was a loving relationship with Mark. And that's it. It was not something unusual to her. Mm -hmm. And that was her normal. So she didn't want to disrupt that. And she didn't want and because that was because it felt good to her. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to put an end to that. And, you know, because it had already been activated in her. And so mm -hmm. it, that that sexuality like oh, we've heard so from sad. jane uh, like we heard from jane and like we had heard just from kate in the way that doreen used to talk mm -hmm. she sought that stuff out mm -hmm. and she wanted to keep feeling that those feelings and i think too like karen also said you know it's been normalized but you still have that natural instinctual feeling that something's wrong so maybe you toe the line a little bit you want to say something to your mother but it comes out as he he didn't want me in a bathing suit so he put me in my underwear or you say oh I'm a model you know because again she's I, I feel like there's a little bit of truth in all the stories but she's sort of selectively it out. choosing see see how you feel about this also so like I said before Joe and I were at a picnic there's a lot of little kids running around and swimming and stuff there was a little girl I mean I couldn't have made it up she was about Doreen's age she looked a lot like her and she had that shoulder length black hair and as we walked out she was um she was, and our girls do this too with our little one. She was catering to a little kid. I mean, think about, you know, Doreen might have known if you wanted to put Mark in jail or put him away, then you can't be with Paul and Sarah anymore. 
You can't right. be with your brother and sister right. because that family will go away. And she needed security and she needed, you know, she hadn't had that security. Maybe she, I don't know, maybe she felt secure. Like you said, she loved him. She felt, you know, but if you if you get rid of Mark, then your your relationship with two little kids, who she loved very very much, but then again, if he hadn't burned her diary, maybe we could have uh, gleaned some insight. With the letters right. too, that's another thing I want to look into. Right again, right. awfully suspicious, letters? very coincidental. Hmm. Um, All right. I want to uh, read a comment uh, that we have on the live feed right now. Um, this is from Joanna Crepon Jones. He didn't want her to run away to her mom's and tell her that he made her have an abortion or purposely made her have a miscarriage. So he got someone to take her. I'm not, I think, I think Joanna ended the sentence early. I think, but I think that's what she's trying to say is that she didn't want, he didn't want Doreen to run away to Donna's house if she was pregnant and Mm. either he, Either he gave her the abortion or forced her to have a miscarriage. Or that explains her. the lock, too, the, mm-hmm. the door lock. Mm-hmm. Again, the idea that you're trying to keep her from running away. Well, why Why would you? I mean, listen, did any, either of you move during your childhoods? When I mean, I kids six. just naturally hate moving. You're, you're moving yeah. out of the neighborhood. You're leaving your friends. Even if you transferred schools, right? That, 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 that's always unpleasant. You're going to necessarily run away. She, she would have had no more friends or, or relationships going to where Donna was than she did moving no. into Wallingford. So, again, that idea that she just ran off and vanished is, is so silly. Um, it, it only would make sense that, that it would have been that. So, yeah, that's a pretty solid, it's a pretty solid thought there. I like mm-hmm. that. Well, what clothes did she leave in? Right? And how come no one ever saw her? And how come she's never been seen again? I, uh, yeah. She either left. Well, see, again, right? What did she? What would she have left in? What was she wearing? Well, I think she didn't what, take any of her stuff at all. I think Joanna was trying to say towards the end of that comment was maybe like sort of in keeping with my theory, too, that it's like sort of a combination of both theories that maybe she was pregnant but maybe that's why somebody else took her away. You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe he, you know, sort of passed it along to somebody else to take care of. Well, and look, you know, if she were pregnant, she's not necessarily pregnant with Mark's kid. Yeah, I mean, it. You know, it. If could she have was been a somebody commodity. else, if if he was giving these pictures out to other people, especially, and if there were other people other men who had access to her mm-hmm. then in theory it could have been any one of those men and he's a jealous guy yes too mm-hmm. you know don't touch carol i'll punch you in the face don't play tag with my daughter outside because you know our source says he pulled him by the the back of the shirt and tried to put him in a chokehold um he's very particular about guarding his girls well you talked about possessions and you also talked about the idea of being an object yep and and i think when you look at something as a possession it is an object yeah oh yeah especially if it's no longer alive well i always thought this too and i have to use i mean again i've been dragging my feet on this but i've got to talk to dorian's uncle yeah um because i think he is relevant not only 
for what happened. But I want to know what she was saying to him. I want to know what she relayed about her father. Did she say anything about having watched porn before? I mean, there were only two people there, her uncle and Doreen, and I want to get put in there. But um, I don't know. I just, there, there's too much surrounding it that I need to like dig down and get, you know, what was really going on. Um, in that house. So let's talk about that then. What, where does Doreen's case go from here now that this season of Faded Out is coming to a close? Um, because let's talk about the FOIA hearing, which is coming up this month. Mm-hmm. And what's ahead for Jessica's new podcast, Sticky Beak, Sticky which Beak. is going to pr- <laughs> premiere soon? Yeah, so Sticky Beak is, like I said, it's Australian and New Zealand, but I couldn't resist it because I tried a lot of different stuff. And there wasn't anything I liked as much as Sticky Beak. So I'm going to be, you know, sticking that nose to places it doesn't need to go or people don't want it to go, um, which includes the police department's um, entire file. They've denied it. They had the opportunity to mediate with me. Um, They chose not to do that and to go straight to hearing. So, um, you know, we we have a hearing. I'm not going to say the date because I don't want there to be a circus. Please don't make it a circus because I want the Wallingford police to think we're as, you know, serious about this as possible. Um, or maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe people there would, would make an impression. Um, but everybody needs to remember that the default is that those records are, um, available under the freedom of information act. They have to prove the exemption. Well, the, this whole thing is, is so ridiculous because this whole thing easily could have been avoided Obviously, you know, you know, the legal process is a little bit better. Mm. There was an opportunity where we could have negotiated or arbitrated or whatever the case may be. You talked right off the top about the collaborative effort. And once again, that's what you get from them. And, Mm. you know, I'm sure they're not huge faded out fans. I get that. I wouldn't be. I know Mark's not. I, I don't blame him. I wouldn't be. Um, I appreciate all those all those folks watching and listening every week. We do appreciate that, uh, despite how you probably feel about it. But we've got we still got all this evidence. We've got all these theories. We've got so much more that we would still love to share with these guys. And again, this has become an adversarial situation for no reason. And and here's the stupid part is. And it is the Freedom of Information Act. If they lose the FOIA hearing, the whole entire file goes public. Yes. I mean, guys, come to, on. To, to people like Mark. Sure. To, to Mark. To, like to, and, and again, we You're think yelling. that there's so many other people involved. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and those names would be released. Well, and so, the thing is, too, smart. we've said this before. I mean, Sarah, obviously the podcast is very important and, you know, we're dedicated to it and I'm dedicated to Sticky Beak and, you know, the investigation I've done on this one. Um, we weren't necessarily going to share it on the air if it was sensitive or if it would screw up an investigation. Right. Give us the pieces so we can help you put the pieces together behind the scenes and then we'll help you break it. Not we want the scoop so we can just, you know, screw you up. Yeah, well, again, um, it just gets back to we're just the the Scooby Doo gang, and we're just gonna we're just gonna put it all out there. And, we offered yeah. to sign NDAs, right? A non disclosure nope. agreement for anybody that doesn't know, and and, and then that that Wallingford told me that's not a thing, and then she reminded it's me, not a thing. All right, you're young. It's not a thing <laughs> because it it's a, it is a thing. It's not a thing after the fact. It's not a thing after the fact. That's what it is. And so I have a contact with the state police department, and or she was an attorney for the state police department. And she, part of her job was responding to a lot of these FOIA requests. She did it as her job. She's a well-respected attorney. 
I think she's great. She's given me a lot of evidence or a lot of, um, you know, uh, preparation for this FOIA hearing. I think she's wonderful. Um, she told me from the very beginning, try to negotiate with them because if they do it privately with you, then they don't have to share it with anybody else. That could have been just for the three of us. That would have been the preference. And instead, and also, you know, hearings are public. So that dirty laundry, I feel like, is going to be aired in a public hearing. That's, that's, if they want privacy and secrecy, that's not what they should be doing. And they should be talking to us because I still don't think they've talked to Paul. They haven't talked to Teresa Lyon. They haven't talked to Jimmy Piscotti. No. They haven't talked to Jimmy Farnham. They haven't talked to Frank IML. They haven't talked to Laura West. I mean, as far as I know, and if you want to talk about what in, I mean, yes, the case is open, but is it active? And when we spoke to DeMeo in the winter, the last thing they had done was 2011. If they have called or talked to any of those people and they didn't get the information we had beforehand, it just goes to show the kind of police work that they're doing because that would have been foolish because of the background and information we've already compiled. They would have gone into those conversations knowing what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. Well, so I told them because I, I had a couple conversations with Laura West and she allowed me to record and not share her voice. Right. So we know what she said and we know the information she brought to the table, but we didn't hear her voice. She contradicted Mark on a lot i'm sorry jimmy. she contacted jimmy farnham on a lot of stuff i told the police that they listened to farnham they told me they found nothing suspicious they were going to have me in to do a side-by-side -side comparison of laura west and jimmy farnham and have me i mean right little old me walk them through what the contradictions were and that meeting never came so i'm sitting on a gold mine of information that they haven't availed themselves of since our meeting was march 4th Yep. Yeah, it's been, oh my God, it's been five months since I, I was like, here's some information. I mean, right, we might be wrong. We could very well be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually went through the chain of ownership for 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Laura West's name to Jimmy Farnham. Not a word. Who acted like he didn't even know that nope, person who was his ex-wife. Yep, not a word. It was a weird mother of his children. That was a yeah. weird. That was yeah. a weird thing. Then uh, my ex-wife. Yeah, that transferred her. Maybe it was in the. Who knows? Whatever. Oh, yeah. they, but a weird thing to not. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's there's a lot in this case, and this is what I want to dig into. There's there's so many spaces where what's not said becomes so much louder than what is actually said, because you know, like I said, he he kind of mumbled. Oh yeah, that guy worked on a renovation for us on our house. And I thought to my, you know, I, it went right by me until it was like two weeks ago. I, I stumbled upon that little bit. So much info. Oh, there's so much info, you guys. It's like maddening. And there's so many more people to talk to. And every single time, I mean, people message me on the page or on my Facebook page. And they have, you know, they want to talk about this. They want to talk about that. They have more information. Are you looking at the comments? I'm People looking at cooking, another huh? theory because I want to take one more opportunity just to talk about some of our listeners' theories because here's another comment from Cindy Nori right now. And I remember, I think I brought up this back in February, um, the pregnancy could have caused the move. He could have been trying to get her away from someone else. And uh, Cindy, Cindy says, maybe the uncle. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember back in February, that thought did cross my mind too, that maybe 
if there was a pregnancy, maybe that pregnancy is the reason for the move in the Mm -hmm. first place. Maybe that was the reason why he suddenly had to get away from, you know, a city like Bridgeport, which is very much an active city. There's a lot of hustle and bustle going Mm -hmm. on to quiet little farm town Wallingford. Well, neighbors. Yeah. There are neighbors in Bridgeport. Mm -hmm. There's no neighbors. Um, The only thing I can think of is that Kate said, because I didn't specifically ask her that question, and I should, the pregnancy question, but she last saw Doreen on June 8th or 9th, and she she didn't say anything about she looked pregnant, but then again, you're in seventh grade. I mean, I don't yeah, know if you why would, would you even be, know. Why would you even right. be looking for something like to that? To support what you just said, if they moved out to Wallingford, and again, I think you and I are pretty comfortable, Sarah, in saying that this happened on the 10th, 12th? No, the 12th. Uh, the 12th, yeah. I mean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with 12th. The, the 12th, Sunday the 12th, right? Um, so literally within seven days of her being there she's dead and Mm -hmm. if he did move out there because she was pregnant to make that no longer be the case that would explain how seven days in she vanished off the face i always think of you sarah you said things went to hell in a handbasket real fast Mm -hmm. i mean well i mean i i think that it you know what, either if it's what Cindy just suggested or if it's what any other mm-hmm. theory that we have, I think that there was a very specific reason as to why ever he moved so quickly from Bridgeport to that house in Wallingford. Mm-hmm. And like I said in that one particular episode, I think it was the Telltale Heart episode, I said at the end, whatever happened in that short period of time went to hell in a handbasket mm-hmm. real quick. That's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. It always sticks in my head. Um, but, oh, God, again, she she just disappeared off the face of the earth, right? That just bothers me every day. I went to Gouveia with some good friends of mine the other day. They'd won a free wine tasting. And, you know, they're not as into true crime or into this case as I am, but I don't think anybody's into this case. Well, sorry, guys. Maybe you guys are. Then the three of us, but... Maybe Donna. Maybe Donna. Maybe Donna, Jess. Maybe Donna. <laughs> maybe Donna. Um, but I'm I'm looking at that house and you can't see that house and it's so beautiful up there, but you can't see that house and, and not think about this, right? Mm-hmm. So Jess, what can we expect in Doreen's case as you start your podcast? Well, I want to go kick some Wallingford PDS. I say that mm-hmm. with all due respect, but you know, they have to come to the table and prove their exemption. Um, that's legally what they're required to do. I want to point out that they, they responded to my letter. I sent the letter May 30th. They had a letter to me May 31st. They're required by the statute to go through each piece of evidence and determine, A, it's a two-pronged thing, whether it is pertinent to an open, active investigation and whether it would be prejudicial to that investigation. Nope, here you go. They did that in a day. They did wow. it in a day. That mm-hmm. is, uh, apparently their police work is top notch. And it was know. Memorial Day weekend. So, you know. Wow. Quick, quickest turnaround quick, they've ever quick had. Turnaround. On a weekend. Wow. So that makes that, me. That's effort, boy. That makes me wonder if that is their MO. Because that MO is not, that's not what the statue is intended for. That's uh, not uh, what the statute's uh, intended for. You're supposed to give me the stuff unless, you know, and and yes, it could be that the file could be open for years. I mean, we could all be dead and that file be open. But understand too, that we asked for very specific stuff out of that entire file. Very specific stuff. Mm-hmm. And if they lose the case, and there's a good chance they might, because... In this country, we err on the side of releasing information mm-hmm. as opposed to keeping it mm-hmm. secret. 
So if they lose it, everything gets released to the public. I mean, I just yeah. don't, I just don't understand parts. it. There's two parts too. Remember, there's the information going to solve Doreen's case to find out where that poor little girl is and to hold the person who should be responsible, responsible for what happened to her people responsible for what happened to her, you know, but I also think there's a larger public interest in finding out why that case has been cold for so long, why they've been so weird and, you know, surreptitious about it and having not shared stuff with us, why they almost seem to try to want to, um, undermine what, what we do and what we're doing. Again, I'll, I'll bring it up, you know, the record journal article, Joe and Jess are a bunch of jerks. You know, they're actually pretty nice to you, Sarah, and that's that's lovely. <laughs> but Joe and Jess are jerks and they're amateurs and this and that and Jessica cries and blah, blah, blah. That's fine. It's not relevant to what we're talking about. It's a missing little girl. So let's talk about that piece of information. Maybe call Teresa Lyon back while you're at it. Comment just came <laughs> in on the live feed from uh, Mark DeGrazio says, be careful with the WPD. You're poking a hornet's nest. Oh, we know. We know. We've done we it know. already. Yeah, we know. And um, so Sticky Beak 2, which, I mean, I need to punt the brakes because um, there's a lot to do on this. But, um, I mean, there's already another case, and it comes out of Wallingford. And I won't spill any information because I don't want to give anybody the heads up. But when people say that the Wallingford Police Department, you know, isn't necessarily a crack team, there are some questions about another case coming out of that particular jurisdiction. I lived in Wallingford for eight years. I lived there with you. For some of them. You sure <laughs> did. And you would live. You would. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, again, I, I don't have an issue with the Wallingford police. It, it, so, I mean, no one's, no one's trying to poke a hornet's nest. We're trying to help the hornets. And, and the mm. hornets are being stupid. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. I really, I really don't understand it. And, and, you know, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, and I had asked the mutual friend, uh, if he could put me in touch with Mike Colavolpe, cause I thought maybe we could, I wanted to tell Mike specifically what I was trying to get my hands on and how we weren't going to share it again. Uh, we'd offered to do an NDA on this particular piece of evidence that we felt would be extremely important for us mm. to figure mm -hmm. out what happened. And then in turn, explain it to them so that they could go do the police stuff. Go make the arrest. Get on the front page of the Record Journal. Big news. <laughs> mm -hmm. Joanna Big Kreppen. news in Wallingford, Meriden. That would be great. Joanna just wrote, she's not poking anymore. She is coming with a blowtorch. Hashtag sticky beak. That is, I mean, here's the thing, guys. I mean, I don't really respond to getting told no very well, um, especially when it comes to a missing little kid. You know, it wasn't like I was asking to get candy or a cookie and they told right. me no. I, I was like, hey, do you want me to help you find this missing dead girl? And they were like, nah, nah, you're all set. I mean, and, and again, trying to undermine what we're doing and make us look like idiots. And and uh, OK, I'm going to take it down. The comment right down. here that says <laughs> um, Melissa Starkey Rodriguez says we, we should be worried about the people who aren't crying over a missing girl. Yeah, that's exactly right. Again, a couple of key players in this reacted to the case of, right? You look at Jimmy Farnham. Mm -hmm. Again, just no concern about that girl at all no. expressed at any point. No. Mark, in my conversation with him, told me he loved her. We can't help. Blame pedophile rings and the government and all kinds of craziness. Right? Never, never any concern about Doreen. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And that's, that there's a lot of people here. I, I, I love that. I saw that statement. I'm glad you just read that on the air. Nice mm-hmm. job, Melissa Starkey Rodriguez. We should mm-hmm. be concerned about the people that aren't crying. Again, everybody wants this case solved more than everybody else does. Mm-hmm. And only three people I know are actually working to solve it. Mm-hmm. Right now on the screen is um, a picture of Doreen from her school before Westwoods that somebody um, dug out of ancestry for us. I mean, you guys are so smart and we really appreciate, you know, all the digging because there's there's stuff that comes up like this gorgeous picture of this little girl. Look at I her face. I was just going to say, what a beautiful, she is. poignant picture too. Like just the, the picture, it's just a perfect picture too. And when you know the story of that little girl, it mm-hmm. just, it's haunting. You know? Uh, you know what I thought about too that I didn't, because, okay, Doreen came to Westwoods in the, the end of seventh grade, right? Per Kate. And then she finished out in June and left and then was gone. Um, why'd, you, why'd you get pulled out of seventh grade in the middle of the school year? That's weird. Yeah. Right? She said she came in. She's like, I, I think it was later than October. It might have been the spring. I mean, I don't know, but um, she was in for those. It's hard, Connecticut geography when you're not here, but she was in Bridgeport living there. She was going to school in, where was that? Where was that school? Do you guys remember? The school before? Yeah. Um, it was in Norwalk. Thank you. Norwalk. Close by? Yes. Right? Yeah. And then Hamden is like, you're going, what, half an hour north? I think so, 40 yeah. minutes north? Yeah. Oh, now we're going to move to Wallingford. You're, you're dipping around a lot. Um, but what struck me with these photos is that, I mean, this picture is haunting. This picture yeah. is very haunting. But in all the other pictures, she's got friends, and she's smiling, and she looks happy, She's got her arms around other kids. Um, I reached out to one of them who, not on the record, because people, <laughs> but he said um, she had a lot of friends. She, she really, we all really appreciated and enjoyed the time that we spent with her. I think if, if anything, as far as this FOIA hearing is concerned, and, and one of the things I think the Wallingford police probably doesn't know and should be aware of is the amount of people we've spoken to who have, in some cases, like Laura Westing, you could use the stuff mm. I say, just don't use my voice. Mm. We've had so many people call up and offer testimony or other evidence about things they've seen or heard who didn't want to be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And so, again, when I, say, when I say that there's so much more to this story, it's literally stuff that we can't share because we've been asked not to share it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the police, we could share with them all day long. Mm-hmm. And it would really help their investigation. So yeah. call us, boys. Yeah. And I just right. want to ask, can you sh- put the last picture up now? Because I think we should talk about that. Um, the picture on the screen now, you'll all see it in a second. Um, it's the side-by-side of Roseanne Poloni and the age-enhanced picture of Doreen. And we talked about that in the last episode. Um it is striking how much Roseanne Poloni looked like Doreen. And when you have an age-enhanced picture of Doreen where it looks like they're about the same age, it's just, it's remarkable. And we didn't make that side-by-side. That's a, that side, that, that um, side-by-side is just a, from a Google search. Roseanne Poloni. So it's with a Z, guys, R-O-Z-E-A-N-N, but Roseanne Poloni, Connecticut, because I pulled it up to show somebody I had pictures that I had, you know, of my own, I pulled it up to show somebody and was like, Oh my God. I, I felt like I was yeah. seeing things. So I encourage everybody. If you haven't done it yet, please go on to Google and Google search Roseanne Poloni, Connecticut, and just look at your image results. 
because immediately right next to it, you're going to see um, an age-enhanced picture of Doreen, which was created by Nekmek. And it, it, to look at them together, the, I mean, even the angle is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, they're even it's, facing in the same direction. It's, it's scary. It really is scary. And um, I, I want to reinforce what I said in the last episode about that. It just seems to me that it would be like Mark's way of paying homage to her, you know, like, because Jane talked about how Mark was very ritualistic. And I think that Jane had also said to you, Jess, uh, even though I didn't share this part of the audio, but Jane said during your conversation that Mark would even be the type of person to carve her name on a tree or something like that. Yeah. And I thought that was, I thought that was exactly right. But then again, this, this follower that I met with, you know, said the opposite. So I don't know where I fall because, you know, people are smarter than me. So I'm like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, don't forget he was burning Roseanne's clothes in a fire pit just shortly after Doreen went missing. That was something that he did with his kid. Um, Skip's on there. Skip Sieber wasn't able to make it with us today. Says uh, maybe Mark was tracking Doreen's periods and he knew before anybody else knew that she was pregnant. Skip's right. That would certainly explain why that diary got tossed into the fire just before. Yeah, because she's a smart kid. She Mm -hmm. knows what a missed period means, right? I mean, I'm trying to put myself back in 80. I mean, I don't know. It's it's a lot. But, um, you know, he did track what people wore. He tracked when Donna was at McDonald's with her friends. He tracked when Teresa Lyon went to the gynecologist and what kind of problems she presented with. I mean, he's... He, he's, he, he wants his ladies to present a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want Carol dating that guy, like I said before. Um, the, his control is his deal. I think it's about time to wrap up this episode. We've been talking for a good hour and a half. Talk about it for so, hours. <laughs> right? And we probably will. This is yeah. my life every yeah. single day. There's an hour and a half discussion Everyone's about this. Everyone's like, can we talk about something not related to Doreen? <laughs> and I feel bad because every time I go to a party now, like um, we were with Abby today. We were with one of Joe's business partners from his real estate dealings. He does real estate too. He does it all. I saw Abby today and I saw Abby at another party on Wednesday and she constantly... She's like, this is Jessica. She and and Joe and this woman, Sarah, have a podcast and they have a cult following. And I'm like, Abby, stop saying I have a cult following. So Abby actually has a podcast, too, called Closing Time about real estate. And so today I was introducing her to people as this is Abby. She has a cult following. She's like, no, you do. But, you know, (laughs) as I as I say this, I mean, people people are saying don't go. No, I mean, that's I'm so glad that these people are here because for a while it was just the three of us sort of like screaming into the abyss. Yeah. You know, but you know, your podcast is going to pick up right where we're leaving this episode too. So, I mean, it's going to be a little while because I have to fight the fight first and then report back about it. But yeah, it's coming. But I want to thank everyone for joining us uh, in studio and on Facebook for this live stream. This will be up in audio form <laughs> as a regular episode. And like I just said, even even though this season is over, um, the case will still continue because Jessica is going to be starting her podcast, Sticky Beak, which it's such a ridiculous will, name that I love. But it. But, it, but it fits. And, it does. Uh, but then, you know. I'll be I'll be listening. I'll be and I'll I'll happily be an audience member yeah. for that podcast. Hey. And Sarah's coming out with Faded Out Three. Oh um, yeah, eventually. and I will. Yeah. 
And uh, I will also be putting out update episodes to Faded Out Season 2 as more updates become available. Um, so, and I will most likely be doing a season three. Um, I think if there is, if there is a season three, just don't expect it right away. It will probably be sometime in the next year because it just has to be at a time that I can take the time to commit to a story and really give it the intention that I feel that a story like that deserves. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are some local cases, unknown cases that I've recently been looking at. So I would say if it's going to happen, I would say spring 2020 is probably when that's going to get started. Um, let's just solve them all. And let's just, yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. go figure out who killed let's John Bonet. Let's go. Then... <laughs> let, let's go through Seems the list the of all. Yeah, let's go through the list of all the all the missing persons cases, and we'll just like split them up, and we'll just like, yeah, just be like um, you go take this one, and mm -hmm. and um, I encourage everybody, of course, to listen to Jessica's new podcast, Sticky Beak, <laughs> when it premieres It'll, uh, and yeah, we will certainly we will certainly let you know when that day comes um but first we have to go through the FOIA hearing proceedings and see what the result of that is and I think we're all very much looking forward to whatever that might bring yeah I like Renee Cody just said oh, what'd she say go kick some stones over mm -hmm. silly little stones I, love it. I thought about silly little stones for the name too because I just want to like but never mind I'm gonna be I'm gonna be nice about it just nosy yeah, I'm curious. And so that'll do it for this season of Faded Out, everybody. This has been season two following the 1988 disappearance of Doreen Vincent. I want to thank Joe Aguirre, Jessica Fritz Aguirre for everything being on this whole journey for the past eight, nine, 10, 12 months, however long it's been at this point, because it's been a while. So. <laughs> It's, it's, I gotta tell you, it's, it's been, it's been great working with you and kind of putting this whole thing together and it's been trying at times and, and it's tough and, you know, and people don't know this about you, but you've had a whole bunch of things going on in your life outside of here and new jobs and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, obviously you in helping her investigate this, you have a job and a life and we're there's doing been, the best we can. You there's know? been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, everybody. And I mean that in the most literal of ways. Yeah. Um, so thanks, everybody, for coming in today. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.